So what we see here as the nation of Israel is getting ready to move into the promised land that, remember in chapter one, God's been given Joshua the encouraging word, be strong and of good courage. Why can Joshua be strong and of good courage? Because God said three times what? I am with you, right? What a good comforting word that is. What a comforting word that is for us to know that God is with us. And, and as we follow in obedience to him, we know that we're gonna be having God with us to carry out his purposes. So they're getting ready to move in the land, but Joshua sends out two spies. He kind of follows in the footsteps of Moses when they sent out spies into the land. But this time, it's a little bit different. You see, the first time, Moses sent out 12 spies in the land to survey the land to see if they really stood a chance or not. Are they going to be able to handle this? Remember, Moses sent the spies out saying there in Numbers 13, verse 18 and 19, see what the land is like. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. So really they're, they're really checking out what are they getting themselves into? What is the land like? Now the scenario there ended quite tragically because 10 of the 12 spies came back, we know, with a bad report. And they discouraged the rest of the Israelites. They all began to grumble and think, there's no way we're going in. We'd be just dead men walking. And, and it didn't matter what the land was like or what they found there, because ultimately, again, God was giving them the land. He had already given it to them. They just needed to possess it. And as a result, because of their unbelief, they remained in the wilderness for that generation of unbelief to die out, a very tragic end to what God desired to do there in the beginning. But Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, were the only two spies that returned with a good report. And they said to the children of Israel, remember in Numbers 14, the land we pass through the spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them. And Joshua gives it, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So we get the idea then now that as Joshua is sending two spies out into the land, it's not so much to see if they can conquer the land. He's sending spies out to strategize how to conquer the land. And he's sending two spies out rather than 12, thinking, I'm going to play my odds right here this time around. <laughs> I'm not going to have the majority here trying to discourage this. We're just going to go with two here now. But again, they're scoping things out in a strategic manner, not to see if we can take the land, but rather how best to take the land here. Hebrew tradition tells us that these two spies that were sent to were Caleb and Eliezer, the high priest. Who they are isn't really important, though. The exciting thing is that God is going to have a very different mission in mind for these two spies going in. Not only is this going to be a strategic mission, this is going to be a salvation mission here in chapter 2. God's been giving the people of Canaan 40 years to turn to the Lord. Genesis chapter 15 tells us that, that he's been giving them lots of time. In fact, more than just 40 years, 430 years for the land of Canaan and the inhabitants of Canaan to repent and turn to the Lord. God has showed his mercy and long suffering, but the Canaanites have continued to show their hard heartedness and their depravity. 
their unwillingness to turn to the Lord, except for one person that we know of here that's gonna be revealed in the second chapter, Joshua. And God, we know, is not gonna judge the righteous with the wicked. So the spies now coming into the land is not just for scouting purposes, it's for salvation purposes. And we're gonna get to that in a moment. But we see that the first city they come to is this formidable city in Canaan, which is the city of Jericho, which you'll see just kind of northwest of the Dead Sea, if you can see Jericho there. And this is a very uh, important city. It's seven miles west of the Jordan River. Now, when it tells us that they were uh, there in verse one, uh, sent from Acacia Grove, that's um, Shittim there on the east side of the Jordan River. And uh, I prefer Acacia Grove, rather than saying that city there. So we'll leave it at Acacia Grove. But that's where they're coming from. As, as you see that, they're coming uh, to the west across the Jordan River and into Jericho, the first city that they're gonna uh, enter into when they come into the land of Canaan. And it was a very formidable city, like I said. Uh, many of the larger cities in Canaan operated as kind of city-states, sort of like their own little kingdom with their own king that presided over them. And we hear about this king of Jericho that's going out to investigate what's going on there when they're hearing the reports of people coming in and visiting. And so that's the case with Jericho. Historians tell us that Jericho was surrounded by a double wall. Its outer wall was six feet thick and its inner wall was 12 feet thick. The first wall was 11 feet high and the second wall was 30 feet high, which sat on a 35 degree angle, which made it very hard for people to try to scale the wall and get into the city. So it was a, designed as a very fortified city. Now, if you're not being led by faith, you'd be looking at this place saying, I'm gonna stay back on the east side of the Jordan. I think we're pretty comfortable over here. I don't know if we're ready to go in and conquer this kind of a, a place here. So the two spies go in. Now, notice what we read in verse four. It says in Joshua 2, verse four, then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it had happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly for you may overtake them. But, verse six, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Here we see Rahab lie to protect the two spies that had come into her house. And it presents for us a very interesting moral and ethical dilemma. Do certain situations justify lying? I'm sure we've all been in those situations where we feel like maybe lying is helpful, maybe protective, and it doesn't really seem like a big deal. Some people have no problem maybe fudging some numbers on their income taxes, right? And I find that quite shocking. That's not the kind of world that I wanna bring up my 32 dependents in. It's just not the way that I wanna do things. But. <laughs> regarding lying, <laughs> regarding lying, let's be clear here. The Bible never commends it or condones it. It just records it. It's a sin and human temptation by which many people have succumbed to. Many great men in the Bible lied. Abraham, Samson, David, the uh, um, 
the Hebrew women in, in Exodus, what do you call them? The midwives, thank you. It's escaping me there. Thank you, Brent. Very well done there. All right. Midwives. So we've seen that happen in Bible, in the Bible, but never was it necessarily an ordained or acceptable thing. Remember, this is the one thing that God cannot do. Numbers 23, 19 tells us, Titus tells the same, that God cannot lie. Other scriptures are clear in this area. The ninth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. Ephesians 4, 25, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Revelation 22, 15, but outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral and murders and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. So the Bible becomes very clear where it stands on lying. Though we see cases of human tendency or temptation to move into a lie, never is it condoned or condemned. Now those that would excuse Rahab's lie would say that it was acceptable because of a, a greater value, that, that being the lives of the spies. There's a, there's a higher you know, regard now for the lives of these people than just the truth coming out. The protection of their lives held a higher value than the truth in that situation. That's how some would kind of justify this here. Now, without excusing her, we need to remember the, the custom of this day regarding hospitality. That was a very big deal. Anyone who came under your roof, you were obligated to bring about the utmost protection for that person. Remember Lot with the two angels that came in where he was even willing to surrender his two daughters at the expense of the, or at the protection of these two visitors to his home. So Rahab may have just simply been trying to carry out her her duty or obligation at this time. Now, put it in a bit more modern times, shall we? What would you do during a time of war as in the days of Nazi Germany when they were ready to kill the Jews unmercifully? If one had come into your house in an attempt to escape, would you rat them out? Would you try to curb the truth somehow? I, I had a chance just this summer to visit Corey Ten Boom's house in Holland and, and be able to go into the, the, the hiding place room where her family hid many Jews. When the Gestapo came to the door, would you think you're wrong to say you didn't have anyone else there? Now, again, I'm not trying to make a case for situational ethics here and justifying lying. I can't condone what God condemns. What we do need to remember is that God is bigger than these things, and he is the one who can and will bring protection. Ultimately, it's often a wiser move just to remain silent when at all possible and not have to lie, but rather just to hold off from saying anything if possible in that situation. Now, what Rahab says is that she hid them with the stalks of flax, or what we read, sorry, not she says it, but what we read is that she hid them with the stalks of flax. And that's interesting because these spies found a covering, protection in this flax. And flax, it's interesting because this is where linen comes from, was from this flax. The high priest was to wear linen on the day of atonement when going into the very holy of holies. It tells us in Leviticus 16, verse 33 to four, thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the 
holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And I think that's so interesting because there's protection needed going before the very holy of holies. There was a covering that was needed. It was linen coverings. And yet just as the high priest was covered so too we have found a covering and protection in a robe of righteousness provided through Jesus Christ. We read in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Colossians 3.3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And what a neat picture of these Spies now being hidden in the stalks of flax. Now a covering provided for them, a covering of protection, just as we have in and through Jesus Christ. Now, we continue to read here in verse eight, saying this. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. It's amazing to see this kind of faith in such a woman. And it's a reminder that though the book of Joshua is one of conquest and judgment, the book begins with a story of God's mercy rather than his wrath. This chapter is revealing to us the great loving kindness of a gracious heavenly father. To see the extent of God's mercy, it, it might be good to look at the things that were stacked up against a woman like Rahab here. Now, first of all, what do we see about Rahab? Well, she's a Gentile. We, we know that through Jesus, Salvation has come to the whole world for every, every person. And, and though there were cases in the Old Testament uh, of Gentiles being brought in the fold, the work of the Lord at this time was operating primarily through the Jewish people. Jesus himself would say that salvation is of the Jews in John 4, 22. Rahab, you see, is an outsider. She was, as, as Paul would later say in the book of Ephesians, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the state of Rahab. That's the state of the, of the Canaanites at this time. She's a Gentile. She didn't have a lot going for her, but God. So she's a Gentile that's stacked against her. Secondly, she was an Amorite. Now Jericho was part of the Amorite kingdom. The Amorites were a particularly depraved people and they were a pagan culture. They were so evil that God thoroughly condemned them and commanded the Israelites to wipe them from the very face of the earth. Deuteronomy 20 verse 17 records that for us. But he shall utterly destroy them, the, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. They're to be utterly wiped out, not to remain anymore. So because of her lineage, Rahab deserved to be taken out. Shouldn't be here, right? 
Thirdly, we see that she's a prostitute, a harlot. Now, some scholars have tried to downplay this and say, well, this word in the Hebrew for harlot can also mean other things. It can mean innkeeper. Perhaps this is what harlot or, or what Rahab really was, just kind of keeping the inn and bringing in the spies, you know, that kind of thing. But when we see her mentioned in the New Testament, we'll get to that in a little bit, she's referred to as a harlot. And the Greek word for harlot there leaves no doubt, no debate that we're talking about a prostitute here. There's no wiggle room there. This is not the kind of person you typically think is gonna be open and receptive to the gospel. In fact, it may be the kind of person that someone would look down on and think, they're too far gone. I don't wanna waste my breath on a person like this. She's a harlot. I've got no business talking with her. Yet, it's to Rahab that the Lord sends these two spies on a great rescue mission. Keep in mind, it's very inconspicuous for these spies to go to the house of a harlot. This would allow them to kind of remain in anonymity here and avoid questions from foreigners for the most part. So this is where God sends them to this woman Rahab that had a lot stacked against her. Though there was a lot stacked against her, here's what she had going for her. She heard the word of the Lord, but not only did she hear it, she believed it. Look at what she says starting in verse nine. In verse nine. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And then in verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. See, Rahab had complete certainty and faith that the Lord has given them the land. Oh, I know. She, not, this wasn't something where she's going, well, it seems like maybe there might be something you know, at work here. I don't know. This is gonna happen this way. No, she's like, I know that the Lord has given you this land. It's obvious. She had a certainty in these things. She trusted the word. And how did she know these things? She's heard the word. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing how? By the word of God. So notice here, faith is springing up in the life of Rahab. She's heard the word, but not only she heard the word, she believes that I know that the Lord has given you this land. We've heard what God has done. We've heard how God has been for you. We've seen and heard how God has led you. There's no mistake in this, there's no doubt. And it's causing her to have faith now in the Lord. Listen, don't underestimate the power of the word of God. Rahab didn't need to have some kind of experience or awakening. She didn't have to have an encounter with angels or some sort of sign. She just heard the word and faith began to well up in her. That's the power of the word of God, my friends. Don't be relying on some kind of manifestation to lead you into the things of God. Don't be relying upon outward things. Trust in what the word of the Lord says. Give out the word of the Lord. Don't feel that you need something more spectacular. There's power in the word of the Lord and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So she's heard about the great miracles God performed for Israel and that he is the true God. In fact, look at what she does. She uses the very covenant name of God. At the end of verse 11, she says, for the Lord your God, and notice that word Lord is capitalized. It's the name for Yahweh. Jehovah, 
the covenant name of God. She's using the very name that God has given to Israel. She's using that now to say, he is the one true God. He is the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. See, Rahab has lived in a pagan culture and I'm sure she's seen the worthlessness of their many gods, but now she comes to know that there's one God greater than them all and over them all. He's God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. She acknowledges, you see, his sovereignty and rulership over all. She knew that she had been on the wrong side of God, but now was ready to be on the right side of God. And we see Rahab now, because of her faith that wells up in her, trusting in the word and trusting not only in the word of God, but in the God of the word. And we see her now mentioned as this woman of faith through the New Testament. She says in a couple passages, Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. She's one of only two women mentioned in this great Hebrew hall of faith in chapter 12. Sarah's the other one. Sarah gave her body to be used as the bearer of the promised child for Abraham, which was Isaac. Yet Rahab gave her body in an impure way and was used to promote paganism. Sarah and Rahab kind of stand as complete contrast from a human perspective, but in God's eyes, they both exercised faith. Faith in Jehovah, the one true God, and God used them both now in a great way. And Rahab is mentioned in the book of James. James is the guy who doesn't let anyone off easy. He's kind of strong, he's kind of hard, and yet he commends the faith of Rahab. But he highlights her faith in action. It says in James 2, verse 24 to 26, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So Hebrews tells us that she was saved by faith, but then James tells us that she was justified by her works. So is it faith or works? That was the difference for Rahab. It's a question that people wrestle with today. Am I saved just by my faith or is, it, or is works necessary? And it's very important for us to put these things in the right order. She was saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. She was saved by faith, but justified by her works. Authentic faith, you see, will be accompanied with authentic works. Faith preceded the works, but works will succeed faith. Salvation produces works, but works does not produce salvation, okay? Salvation will produce works, but works cannot produce salvation. That comes by faith alone. But true saving faith will never continue alone. See, Rahab was not saved because she received the spies. She received the spies, I believe, because she was saved. Her faith was in God, and God was using the scouting mission to be an ultimate rescue mission for Rahab and her family, as we'll see. We serve a, a wonderful God who wishes that none would perish, and also shows his wonderful providence in directing the spies right to this home here. Now, it's interesting that in these two New Testament passages, Rahab is still identified as a harlot. That's kind of like a hard thing to kind of carry with you through history. But I think it's a reminder for us that 
Nobody is too far removed from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. This is who she was, but it's not who she will be. In fact, it's only when she is identified in that third passage in the New Testament, where she's identified in the lineage of Jesus that that term harlot is removed. Matthew 1 verse 5, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, no longer mentioned as a harlot. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, you see. Rahab now gets brought in to the very line that is gonna bring the Messiah into the world. That's the amazing grace of God here. But you see, not only was Rahab saved by putting her faith in Jehovah God, but she became a forebearer to the Messiah, and she's listed here in this genealogy of Christ. She may have been condemned in the past, but things sure look different in the light of Jesus Christ. And no longer she seen as a harlot here. It's by being linked to Jesus that we truly become new creations, isn't it? It's only in and through Jesus. And again, we're not sure when Rahab got saved exactly, but it's a reminder that we are not to dismiss or judge people based on what we see in front of us, based on maybe what has been a part of the past. We're called to be fishers of men. We're not called to be cleaners of fish, but catchers of fish. Too often we get caught up in trying to fix people or correct all their mistakes and think, you need to, you need to get this right before you, know, you can be accepted. No. We're just called to lead them to Christ. He does that work of sanctification, of cleansing, of refining, of purifying. He carries out his work. Let's be careful that we don't dismiss someone thinking that they're not the right kind of people that God can save or use because this story here illustrates for us very clearly that God is ready to save anybody that's willing to put faith in him. Amen? Now, what I love about all this is seeing how God was working on the west side of the Jordan before the people of Israel even came in. So remember, as we saw earlier, the 10 spies came back with a very bad report that instilled a lot of fear in the people of Israel. They all had a fear of the people that were in the land of Canaan. But notice, it's the people in the land of Canaan that had a fear of the people of Israel. Because God was already working those things out in their hearts and in their lives. Verse 11 says, and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. This is what Josh and Caleb would have Love to yell out, I told you so. Why do you listen to us? This is what we've been trying to tell you 40 years ago. Nobody listened. And the people of Israel took 40 years now to wander in the wilderness because they didn't believe God could bring them in. Now they're hearing that the people of Canaan were actually afraid of them. See, God was already at work in bringing fear to the Canaanites. Their hearts melted. That's some substantial fear, I would say. I don't know what that means, what that looks like. I don't want to experience it. But God is bringing them to a place where they were just cowarding in their place, hearts melting of fear. See, God wants us simply to trust him. And even when we don't see how things are going to work out, believe that he's got it figured out and that he's already at work preparing the way and ready to move you in to what he has for you as we just begin to walk by faith. He's already worked to bring about his purposes. Are we trusting him? Are we looking at what's in front of us? Or are we saying, God, 
though what I see in front of me seems kind of a little bit worrisome, I'm going to believe and trust that you're already at work in ways that I don't see. Because the people of Israel didn't know what was going on. But they, all they had to do was simply trust the Lord and know that God was already working it all out. We'll continue on in verse 12. We read, Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours. And it shall be, when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. So as Rabe has experienced this great mercy of the Lord, she wants the same now for her family. She's thinking outside of herself. She's not just going, oh, this is great. I'm going to keep this to myself, man. No, she's looking to see who else can be brought into this great grace of God. This great mercy we've received from Jesus is meant to be shared with others, isn't it? Now, this wasn't to go beyond her family. She wasn't to share this info with others because it would put everybody's lives in danger. But now, let's reverse that. Because of what we've received in Jesus, if we don't share this info with the lives of those around us, people are in danger, in danger of going to hell. We've got a great word, a great message, the good news that needs to go out and be shared with people. And this is the very story we see here before us. It's not just some reconnaissance mission. It's a rescue mission. It's two spies going in to share this good news and to see people saved and spared. And that's what God has sent us into the world to do, to go into the world and to share the good news, to evangelize and to be a witness. People are going to hell. And I pray that we have that kind of a passion or a, a heart that sees the concern for people if they don't hear the good news of Jesus Christ, if they don't have an opportunity to receive what Jesus has for them to be rescued, spared, and saved. So may we be active in sharing the good news with those all around us. Salvation is found in him alone. As these two spies pledged their lives as surety of Rahab's safety, Hebrews chapter seven tells us that Jesus has become the surety now for us of a better covenant and he'll deal kindly and truly to all that put their faith in him. Reading on in verse 15, it says, then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. It's kind of like prime real estate there to be on the wall like that in the city. So she dwelt on the wall and she said to them, get to the mountains, let the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. Verse 19. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we'll be free from your oath, which you made us swear again, just for safety and not to let the word get out and have people come in. Verse 21, then she said, according to your words, so be it. 
And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. So here in this passage we've read, we're introduced to the scarlet cord. Verse 18 right there. It's a scarlet cord that weaves its way throughout scripture and leads us to Jesus. This isn't a green or yellow cord. It's scarlet or crimson red. Now, a harlot in this day would paint their window sills red to identify them. Think red light districts today. Don't think too much about that, but that's the idea here. They'd paint their window sills red to identify them. And now this scarlet rope would be lowered out from the window, crossing over that red window sill, forming the shape of a red cross. So what's really amazing is where this scarlet color originated from. Maybe you've heard this before, but the color is made from the dried body of the Caucasus elicis worm. The crimson worm looks more like a grub than a worm. And in the life cycle of this worm is where the deeper meaning is found and it points again to the work of Jesus on the cross. See, when the female crimson worm is ready to lay her eggs, which happens only once in her life, she climbs up a tree and attaches herself to it. With her body attached to the wooden tree, a hard crimson shell now begins to form, and it is a shell so hard and so secure to the wood that it can only be removed by tearing apart the body, which would then kill the worm. Now, the female worm lays her eggs under her body, under that protective shell, and when the larvae hatch, they remain under the mother's protective shell so the baby worms can feed on the living body of the mother worm for three days. After three days, the mother worm dies, and her body excretes a crimson or scarlet dye that stains the wood to which she's attached and stains the baby worms. The baby worms remain crimson colored their entire lives. Thereby they are identified as crimson worms. Psalm 22, remember that great messianic psalm, Jesus says, I am a worm, right? Uh, we'll leave that alone, but that's another story altogether. But on day four, the tail of the mother worm pulls up in her head, forming a heart-shaped body that is no longer crimson, but is turned into a snow-white wax that looks like a patch of wool on the tree or fence. It then begins to flake off and drop to the ground, looking like snow. And remember what Isaiah 118 says, "'Come now and let us reason together,' says the Lord. "'Though your sins are like scarlet, "'they shall be as white as snow. "'Though they are red like crimson, "'they shall be as wool.'" A beautiful picture that we see here of this scarlet cord. Now the Israelites were told to do a similar thing in seeing their lives spared at the Passover. They were to apply the blood of a lamb upon their doorposts, again, forming a cross. The scarlet cord weaves its way through scripture, leading us to Jesus. These two Israelite spies would be lowered down from this scarlet cord. They would go and hide for three days in the mountains, then return to the other side of the river. Jesus, in like manner, would be lowered down from a scarlet-stained cross. He would be in hiding for three days, but would rise again and emerge on the other side of death. And he's returning again to complete our redemption. Oh, listen, our redemption is sealed now, yes, but one day it'll be brought to finality when we are with him and be made like him. Praise the Lord. But here's the deal. Just as the spies are instructing Rahab, unless your family is here in your house, they cannot be saved. In like manner, we need to remain in Jesus. He's done the work, the provision is provided, but we need to remain 
in Jesus because there's no other place of salvation. It's in Jesus alone. Just as Rahab and her family had remained in the house, just as Noah and his family had remained in the ark, just as Paul said to the crew when they were ready to be shipwrecked, unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot be saved. We need to remain in Jesus. Listen, we're tempted to jump ship when pressure comes in, no doubt. We think about other options when life gets hard or answers are few, but Jesus is the only provider of salvation. There's no plan B, guys. Regardless of how hard life can get, Jesus has secured your salvation. So remain steadfast in him. And he's coming again. And what he has in store for us will cause our present and temporal pain to be a forgotten memory. Remain in Christ. It says in verse 21, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. That scarlet cord, this picture of salvation, wasn't going anywhere, it's bound. Rahab knew that this was the only way to be spared from judgment. May that truth be bound in our hearts here today. John 15, 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Abide in Christ, for in him is salvation. He is our Redeemer. He has that scarlet cord by which, by his blood that was shed for us, has paid the penalty for our sin that we could be forgiven, and that we could be saved. Remain in Jesus. Well, verse 22, they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told them all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. What a great report. <laughs> Only it was the same report Joshua gave the nation some 40 years prior. Same report. Again, if we don't walk by faith, we're destined to wander in the wilderness. And listen, living by faith is an exciting life to live because it's there that you get to see God at work. Step out in faith. Trust the Lord. See what he's gonna do. See what he already has provided for you. Walk by faith. Rahab had to exercise great faith and courage in, in trusting these spies and taking them. She had to have great faith and courage in telling her family about the coming judgment and the only way to be spared. They could have gone and ratted her out, but her faith took action and she was justified by her works. Next time, and Joshua will move from the faith of an individual to discuss the faith of a nation that will be needed to move Israel into the land. But may we be those like Rahab that exercise faith. It doesn't have to be great faith. It has to be faith exercised in a great God. He is able. Trust him. Lean on him. Remain in Christ, the provider of our salvation.